thank you all of you very much for, for coming. Some of you, uh, I know, know who I am, but many of you may not. Uh, I'm John Dyson, uh, the person up there. Uh, I was a barrister for many years, but unlike David Panic, I didn't last the course, and I was tempted onto the bench. I was a judge for more than 20 years. After some time on the High Court bench and in the Court of Appeal, I was appointed as a Justice of the Supreme Court and finally Master of the Rolls, and I sort of retired in 2017. I became a patron of Support Through Court many years ago when it bore the slightly odd name of Personal Support Unit. That name gave no clue as to what it does, and I think it was very wise of uh, people in due course to change the name to give a better idea. But what it does is far more important than its name. It is, in my view, a wonderful charity which supports litigants who face the terrifying ordeal, and I'm sure for many it is truly terrifying, of having to navigate the court process and represent themselves in civil and family litigation without the benefit of legal representation. And sadly, these days, there are many such litigants. I'll say a little more about the service that the charity provides at the end of the conversation that is about to unfold. But I need to say a few words about our two speakers, neither of whom, in a way, needs any introduction uh, to most, if not all, of this audience. So I will be brief. Uh, Lord Panic, KC. David has unquestionably uh, been one of the UK's most highly regarded advocates for many years. He specializes in public law and human rights law, but he can turn his hand uh, to anything, really. He doesn't always win his cases, <laughs> but then who does? <laughs> he is the advocate to, to whom parties go if they have a really difficult case, which in other hands they would almost certainly lose. It is noticeable that when our government is up against it, and it has been recently, uh, when it, the government is up against it facing a legal challenge to a, a particularly controversial policy uh, decision, they often turn to David Panic to rescue them. Sometimes he does, and sometimes he doesn't. Judges, I can say this without fear of contradiction, judges do enjoy his advocacy, although they, they know that they need to be on their guard. Uh, the reasoning of his submissions can be dangerously seductive and may lead judges to uh, a point where they think this cannot be right, and yet they find it quite difficult, and I speak from personal experience, quite <laughs> find it quite difficult to see where it has gone wrong. Uh, and that is a, an indication of his uh, brilliance as an advocate. He was called to the bar in 1979, took silk after a mere 13 years in 1992, he appeared countless times before the appellate committee of the House of Lords and then in the Supreme Court. He was appointed a life peer as a crossbencher in 2008. I know from talking to other peers that David's contributions in debates have been highly influential. And as if that were not enough, he has written extensively on legal issues. There are the books, and for many years there were his columns in the Times newspaper. I'm, I regret that those are disappeared now. I don't know whether they'll ever come back. But <laughs> So we're indeed fortunate that David has agreed to speak tonight. But we're just as lucky in having Joshua Rosenberg, KC, as the person who has agreed to interview David. 
Joshua is without doubt the most highly regarded legal commentator of our time. He qualified as a solicitor, so he understands legal issues and clearly finds them, and lawyers, I think, fascinating. He has a very clear idea of what is going on in the legal world. I expect he has a view about who is going to be the next Chief Justice. Uh, and he will probably express it publicly if he hasn't already, already done so, but I don't know whether he has or he hasn't. He is the only journalist uh, to have been appointed as an honorary silk. He was the BBC's legal correspondent for 15 years before moving in 2000 to the Daily Telegraph. In 2010, he returned to the BBC to present the popular Radio 4 series Law in Action, a programme which he had launched in 1984. He's written various important books, including famously The Enemies of the People, as well as columns in the Law Society Gazette and The Guardian. In 2020, he launched a new blog, which is a must read for anyone who wants to keep abreast of the latest legal issues and the latest gossip. Joshua is a completely reliable and trustworthy journalist. Judges speak to him freely because they know that if they tell him, and I speak from personal experience, if they tell him something in confidence, he will not breach that confidence. He is an engaging interlocutor, and by his blend of friendliness and intelligence, he charms the person he is interviewing into perhaps revealing more than is wise. <laughs> so let's see what happens on this occasion. <laughs> so I'm about to hand over to Joshua to get the ball rolling. He and David will speak for about an hour and then there will be time for uh, questions. Um, he uh, is, um, so please keep your questions until the end of the conversation. The questions will be moderated by Joshua, uh, and I will then wrap up at about, I'm told, about 7.25, but we'll see about that. I will wrap up at about 7.25, and then after that, there will be a reception. So without more from me, I hand over to Joshua. John, thank you very much indeed for that very, very kind introduction. Um, just for the benefit of, of those of you who have uh, trains to catch or refreshments to enjoy, um, the, the 7.25 wrap-up and, and the 7.30 everybody out is the very latest that this will happen. Um, and, and David is um, uh, notoriously uh, careful with his time and uh, his view is that we should be able to get through this slightly more quickly. But we shall see. It slightly <laughs> depends whether I can think of questions. It depends whether I can charm David or David can charm me, since we were both accused of being charming uh, by uh, Lord Dyson. Um, the only comment I'll make about John's reference um, uh, to who might succeed to be the most senior judge here in England and Wales is that if you listened very carefully, uh, Lord Dyson referred to the next Chief Justice. He did not refer to the next Lord Chief Justice. So I'll leave you to ponder what that, that might mean uh, in terms of the potential candidates. What I was told by somebody today is that nobody knows who's got it, uh, which is quite unusual because in the past this has leaked. But we shall see. We shall see. Well. David, um, you and I have known each other for some 40 years, uh, slightly more than 40 years, on and off. Um, and um, when I was looking at all the cuttings to find out um, about you, I, I found I'd written some of them, which, um, 
<laughs> probably meant that I ought to remember. But, but why don't we start at the beginning? Um, no lawyers in your family. Tell us about your, no, your family. No, no lawyers. Perhaps we should explain why we first oh, yes. met. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. We first met because uh, Joshua was a BBC radio producer. Yes. And um, he thought it might be a good idea to ask me to uh, be the presenter on a pilot edition of um, a legal program. And so I did. And at the end of it, Joshua gave me some succinct advice. And the succinct advice was stick to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I've done ever since. Very good advice. Otherwise, I could be the Joshua Rosenberg. Yes, but I could not be the no, David no, Well, well <laughs> That's the important thing. Well, um, what happened, as, as you recall, was that um, uh, we tried, I tried to persuade Radio 4 to commission uh, a, a, a program about the law. And at that point, Radio 4 said no. It wasn't because of the presenter of the pilot program. It was because they didn't think anybody would be interested in mm. the law. Uh, but two or three probably years... Right, uh, possibly right. Possibly. Well, I don't know, because you see, two or three years later, along came uh, somebody important who uh, was running the BBC, as I think the chairman, um, and he said, yeah, what are we doing about law? I'm sure we should be doing something about law. And, of course, Radio 4 said, yes, yes, we've got this programme planned. It's going to be called Law in Action. Uh, but by then, I had switched from being a producer to being a reporter, uh, and, and then they said, uh, yeah. uh, make the legal correspondent, present the programme, which I did for the, the entire length of two and a half years before I gave it up, but then I came back. Anyway, to answer your question, no lawyers in my family, lots of barrack room lawyers, no lawyers, certainly no broadcasters in, in my family. My father uh, ran a shoe shop in Romford Market, and he was well known uh, for saying to customers, uh, if you don't like them, don't have them. And um, I, I've tried to be a bit more... Uh, consumer friendly uh, in, 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 in my practice. My mother uh, was a school secretary at Woodford County High, uh, so no, no legal background uh, at all. School at a direct grant grammar school, as they were called? Yes, in those, in those days. days, until Shirley Williams uh, changed the system. Uh, a quarter of the places at Bancroft School in Woodford Green were paid for by the local authority, and I was fortunate enough to uh, have a scholarship at Bancroft School. And um, a wonderful school, wonderful teachers, and um, I, I moved on from there. You moved on to Oxford, where you studied law? I studied law, I did a BA, uh, and I was taught by the great Roy Stewart, who was one of the old-fashioned uh, tutors. He published very, very little, uh, but was concerned about the welfare of his students. And he devoted his time and efforts to encouraging uh, all, all of us. So I was very fortunate. But you also went to see Ruth Deach at St Anne's, Baroness Deach, as I, she is I now. I did, yes. She taught me land law, which she I didn't understand at all. Uh, well, this is not what she says. She, <laughs> says that, she says that she had a question which she asked, to every, uh, which she asked of every undergraduate who, who, who came to see her for tutorials because um, she could be completely sure that none of them would have an answer. Right. Do you remember the question? Uh, the question no, I was? certainly don't Okay, remember. I'll tell you the question, and you can answer it. Um, the, question was, um, <laughs> the question was, what is a fee simple? Yeah. And, and you answered this. I'm, I won't ask you the question, because... I certainly don't know the answer now. <laughs> and I knew the answer in 1975, uh, you, I, I've long forgotten it. Very wise, very wise. But the fact was... 
she says <laughs> that when you answered that question, she immediately knew that you, as the first-year undergraduate, knew more about fees simple than she did as the law tutor. It's a very sad story, isn't it's it? It's a very sad story. <laughs> Tells you something. It suggests that I didn't get out very much. <laughs> no, but how did you? Why, why law? I mean, how, did did you? Well, did when you I was at school, I liked debating, and this is even sadder. During the school holidays, I would go to the old Bailey and I would watch trials, and uh, I would watch Crown Court. I would watch um, um, Rumpole of the Bailey. Um, uh, I think this was before. LA law, certainly before Boston legal, but I would watch the legal programs and I liked the idea of standing up in court and, um, and presenting a case, cross-examining a witness, which I've, I've very, very rarely done in the last 40 years. But yes, I found that very interesting and I stayed on at, um, at Oxford, I did a BCL and I came straight to the bar. Ah, but before that, you, um, there was the wonderful thing about Oxford is that they had the, the perfect college it was a college with no students, or at least, uh, strictly speaking, a college with no undergraduates. Uh, and it existed purely for the pleasure of the fellows, for uh, uh, pursuing the beauty of research, um, and very occasionally, just to make themselves feel a little less guilty about their staggering endowment, the half of Northwest London, um, and, and their beautiful college, and, and their amazing uh, Chicherley dinners that you very kindly invited me to, uh, and all that sort of thing, they just very occasionally uh, created what they called prize fellows. Well, every year there were examinations, and the, uh, all souls would normally appoint two people uh, in any subject. You could do history, law, um, uh, art subject, really. But they, they, they were the two brightest undergraduates. Well, there were two people who did the best in the exams, that, that year. And it was a wonderful opportunity because in those days, uh, All Souls consist, consisted of remarkable people. I mean, Lord Hailsham was there every weekend, Isaiah Berlin, um, uh, Sir John Foster, uh, quite remarkable people. John Sparrow had recently retired as being the warden. Uh, Pat Neal, great legal figure, was the, was the new warden. And it was an astonishing opportunity for a 22-year-old to be a fellow there and to be able to meet these people. And it was because I was a fellow there that I got pupillage. In those days, uh, the system was you uh, sought to get pupillage by reference to who you knew. Um, and uh, I knew Michael Hart, who was a young uh, law fellow, and was a chancery barrister, became a high court judge and tragically died far too young. And he said, well, you must come and be my, my pupil. So I went to um, Two New Square in uh, Lincoln's Inn, chancery chambers, and I hated it. It was absolutely terrible. What he did was he would do variations of trusts and uh, he would draft these variations and once a term maybe go to court for uh, an agreed order. And so at All Souls, um, I, I was complaining about this to another fellow, um, Max Belloff, Lord Belloff. And I said, this is terrible. He said, ah, oh, well, you must come and be the pupil of my son, and, um, who is here today, uh, Michael Belloff. And um, that was exciting, because Michael did judicial reviews. He did sports law. He did everything. And um, you know, in the evening, he would go off and run marathons, and he was the 
um, the legal correspondent of the Observer at the, the weekend. Judicial review was really quite new in those days. Well, it was, yes, absolutely. This was, um, when did I start? Must have been 1979, 1980. It was the early days. So we were in there at the beginning. I had a front row seat, or rather the seat behind <laughs> Michael Bell, uh, watching uh, the, these, these great cases. And, and that's where I cut my teeth. And because he very generously would bring me into cases, uh, uh, he was still a junior in those days, but I'd be the second... Uh, junior, my name would appear in the Times Law Reports, and then solicitors would think, ah, well, that panic, he obviously knows about that, so then I would get briefs. That's how it worked in those days. Unfortunately, now, um, it's not who you know, but um, what you know, and um, uh, pupillages are allocated on a much more uh, rational and fair system. But that's how it worked in 1979. So you were in the chambers which were then called Two Hair Court, yes. uh, which then became Blackstone Chambers. Became uh, Blackstone Chambers around 2000. I think. And, and you've stayed there ever since. I've stayed there the ever board. since, yes. yes. Uh, moved up the board. Um, uh, you've never particularly wanted to run chambers or anything no, like that? No, certainly not, no. I mean, there are people who have administrative <laughs> abilities uh, who run things. Uh, we have uh, Julia Horner, who's sitting there as our chambers director. We have... Um, uh, Jane Mulcahy, who is our current joint head of chambers, they're very good at it. Uh, uh, I, I'm not. Uh, but the chambers have grown and prospered and they're yes. taking over more and more buildings and half the... Well, I think when I joined, we probably had about 20 barristers. But uh, as with most sets of chambers, we have expanded. And we're now, what, well over 100? I, I don't know. 130. Yeah. 120. 120. I mean, there are people in chambers. I see them walking around. I have no idea who they are. Um, uh, that, that's, a, that's a shame. It is a shame. That's a shame because, that, that you, you know, one's lost something um, there. Yeah. Okay, so you're, 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 you're proceeding um, uh, in your career, um, and uh, as, as, as John Dyson says, um, quite soon um, you trespass on the sacred field of journalism, to begin with The Guardian, I think, uh, writing a column. Uh, yes, well, I enjoyed writing um, uh, columns, uh, first for The Guardian, then I think I moved to The Independent, uh, then uh, to the Times, um, but this was very much uh, to amuse myself, um, uh, hopefully others, but my main occupation obviously was the law. And I had many, I mean it wasn't just Michael who brought me into cases, Anthony Lester, the late Anthony Lester, brought me into cases. My first case, I think it was my first case, was as his second junior uh, in the Privy Council. You, your first client was hanged? Yes, that's, that, that's the story. That uh, I was the um, second junior in the case of Ong Ah Chuan, the late Ong Ah Chuan, uh, who was convicted of drug trafficking in Singapore, and he had an appeal to the Privy Council. And um, it was on constitutional grounds, uh, and we lost, and my first client was hanged. And you can only get better after that. <laughs> um, now... In this time, you were writing uh, um, uh, longer things, and, and you produced a book uh, called Judges, and struck me at the time, you were quite interested in judges. After all, they're the people you appear before. Yeah. And at one point, it struck me, you were considering the possibility of seeking to become a judge. Was that right at the time? Was that something you considered? Well, and what I, young barristers I, I, thought about? I think most barristers, by the time they reached their late 40s, early 50s, start to think 
well, do I really want to remain an advocate and do nothing else? And um, many of them go on the bench. Some go to be heads of houses at Oxford or Cambridge or other universities. Some go into uh, industry. Um, um, but I loved the bar. I liked doing the work. And I was fortunate enough in 2008 to be appointed as a crossbench peer, as John mentioned. Uh, so, um, and I was never really keen on, on being a judge. I sat for some time as a recorder. I would go to St Albans. Uh, I'd never appeared in a, uh, in a Crown Court as an advocate, uh, but the Lord Chancellor, in his wisdom, it must have been Derry Irvin in those days, decided to appoint me as a recorder. So I would sit in St Albans Crown Court uh, presiding in criminal cases with no criminal experience at all. And, it's re and, and this was on the basis of maybe uh, a week's training, uh, which was customary in those days that you would have uh, before you were let loose on, on the jury and the defendants. I mean, a remarkable system. And it is astonishing that um, there wasn't a major scandal as a result <laughs> of um, my, my uh, adjudication. Um, Alex Carlyle once told me a story that he'd sat as a, a judge, I think in a civil case, uh, in an area that he wasn't familiar with. And he was giving his judgment and as he gave his judgment, he looked up and he could see the two counsel in the case looking at each other, and they were going, mm. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> I think I probably had that experience uh, in the Crown Court. And I didn't really enjoy it. I found it very difficult. I found it very difficult to concentrate. I found it very hard work. And um, I sat for some time as a deputy judge in the High Court doing judicial reviews. And that was really hard work. I, I, I used to watch that. I used to come and see you once or twice uh, in, the, in the court that became a cafe or the cafe that became a court, yeah. 26 or 29 or whatever. And, and it was quite clear. Um, these, I mean, they were, they were fairly low-grade cases, yeah, fairly were. junior counsel. Yeah. Um, and and uh, these counsel would come in um, and it was entirely clear from your face that you had decided the case before <laughs> either of them uttered a word. <laughs> And, you know, you weren't exactly looking at your watch, no, but you, uh, you, you didn't enjoy it. No. Well, I think that, that, that was perhaps customary of many judges uh, in uh, those days, maybe in the 90s. I mean, judges don't behave like that nowadays. If anything, they bend over backwards to be yeah. too polite uh, to counsel who are going on perhaps too long, may I suggest. Um, you mentioned um, 2008, um, and, and there was a, a headline in, in the Telegraph um, uh, which went, um, popular panic picked as people's peer, um, uh, which I thought was rather good, probably because I wrote it. Um, and uh, um, and uh, I, oh, I can't imagine anyone else getting away with it. Anyway, um, that, uh, just explain what a people's peer was and is. Well, Tony Blair had the bright idea when he was Prime Minister after uh, persuading Parliament to remove almost all of the hereditary peers from the House of Lords, uh, that there should be more uh, uh, popular, accessible people who were to be appointed as life peers. And a committee was set up and um, it tended to appoint, in fact, people very similar to those who were already there, but it was 
publicised probably by Alistair Campbell rather than by Tony Blair as people's peers. And the idea was that people could write in to the Appointments Commission and they could recommend the people that they thought should be appointed. And maybe they did. Maybe they wrote in and recommended Richard Branson or Cliff Richard or um, you know, David Attenborough. Well, David Attenborough was probably, he had a, a, a knighthood anyway. Um, and, and I was encouraged to, um, uh, to apply by uh, my good friend Harry Wolfe, by Anthony Lester, and they were my referees. And um, uh, they were looking for a lawyer. And I persuaded the appointment committee, which uh, was chaired by Lord Stevenson, that I would actually go there and do the work. And you did. And I did, yeah, absolutely. I meant it because I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it enormously. And I, until I got there, I hadn't quite realised how Parliament works. And how Parliament works is that the House of Commons doesn't have the time or the inclination to address the detail of the legislation before it. It discusses the main points of principle, but then it sends it on to the House of Lords. And the House of Lords, whatever you think of its constitutional role and the absence of, of the democratic deficit, does actually do a valuable job in scrutinising um, legislation. And that requires peers to do the work of looking at, at, the, uh, at the legislation. And this is not an advert for the House of Lords, but something like 85, 90% of the amendments which we make in the House of Lords are uncontentious. They improve uh, the, the, the legislation. And I enjoyed that on, um, on, on issues that I'm, I'm familiar with. And from your point of view, being a legislator must make you a better lawyer. Yeah. Being a lawyer must make you a better legislator. Yes, I think so, because I, I mean a great deal of litigation, particularly in the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court, concerns the interpretation of legislation, ambiguities in legislation. And if you've seen how the process works, um, then that does, uh, you've seen it close up, it does give you, um, uh, you know, ideas as, as to how to uh, argue points that, uh, that arise. And I was also, I served on the Constitution Committee, which meant that I saw the issues that were coming up in, in the House of Lords, issues uh, you know, of constitutional importance. So I enjoyed it very much, absolutely. And, that, and that, that confirmed my belief, to answer your question, that I didn't really want to be a judge. I mean, there are people who do the job, they do it very well, they're very well qualified to do it. I like arguing, I like presenting one side of the case and let somebody else decide which is the right answer. There was a time in the late 1990s when it was considered acceptable for the law lords who were members of the House of Lords, otherwise they wouldn't have been able to sit as judges of the final court in the United Kingdom, it was acceptable for those law lords to take part in pretty political debates. Um, and then, this thing, then, then the whole system changed and you up to uh, 2009 and the creation of the Supreme Court and it was decided uh, that although members of the Supreme Court would have the courtesy title of Lord or Lady, they wouldn't be made peers. Yes. The Lord Chief Justice, or uh, whoever uh, his successor may be, uh, by convention is made um, a peer. But the problem is there aren't very many very senior lawyers in no. the House of Lords. And, and I mean, you, uh, Lord Anderson of Ipswich 
Casey uh, has been brought in, uh, possibly. Um, I don't know if you had anything to do with that, but I mean, you and he are very valuable practicing lawyers who can provide some legal expertise, not least because of the fact that although uh, anybody who was a law lord um, is entitled to sit, um, uh, people have taken leave of absence because of the requirements of the House of Lords. Yeah, there are a number of legal peers there. Many of them have served as Conservative Party ministers and for various reasons have left that post. <laughs> they got fed up with the, the, the limitations. I'm thinking of uh, my friend David Wolfson, uh, I'm thinking of Richard Keane, uh, Edward Folkes. So there are a number of very distinguished lawyers who sit <coughs> on the Conservative benches. Uh, but there is a problem, uh, and the problem is that before uh, the, uh, the change, 2005, um, all members of the appellate committee were members of the House of Lords, as you say. And when they retired, they tended, not all of them, but most of them would come back to the House of Lords and, and, and do the hard lifting. They would chair committees, they, you know, like the Conduct Committee or um, uh, Private Bill Committees. Um, but, uh, and, and when the Supreme Court was created, there was in fact a promise because this issue was raised, there was a promise that all those appointed to the Supreme Court would be made members of the House of Lords. And that promise was broken. And the consequence is that uh, there, is a, there are very few um, senior uh, uh, judges who now sit in the House of Lords. Um, uh, Simon Brown still attends uh, regularly. David Hope uh, attends regularly. It's not been helped by the fact that in the House of Lords, uh, against my views and the views of many others, a rule was passed which requires uh, the disclosure of any money that you earn from a foreign government. And um, uh, many of the people who, were former, who are former judges who sat in the House of Lords and played a very important role uh, felt that they had to take leave of absence because they're arbitrators and arbitration is confidential. And they couldn't disclose that they're being paid uh, by, uh, even though you know, there's only one party in the case, they're not acting for them, they're arbitrators, but they're receiving money from you know, Ruritania. Uh, so there's a declining number of, of senior judicial figures uh, in the House of Lords. That's a real problem, it's a very real problem. Um, uh, the Lord Chief Justice can't sit in the House of Lords while he's in post, uh, but when he retires, maybe he will come to the House of Lords. Others have been appointed. Um, Heather Hallett was appointed. Um, but then you've got the difficulty. Is it really appropriate uh, for the Prime Minister to pick and choose between uh, retiring judges as to which of them should be appointed to the House of Lords? Uh, Lord Reid's been appointed as the President of the Supreme Court, um, uh, and, um, uh, but he can't sit. Uh, it used to be the case that the Master of the Rolls would be appointed to the, uh, the House of Lords. Um, I don't want to embarrass him, but John Dyson, it didn't happen. And uh, uh, many of us can't understand why, why that is so. So it is a real problem. There's another very interesting conflict um, that you personally have encountered, um, which is... Um, that uh, you have taken a self-denying ordinance 
um, in that you haven't been talking about a current issue in the House of Lords because you are involved in a current case relating to the same issue, um, uh, which I can sum up uh, with the one word Rwanda. Yes. Now, um, uh, why don't you, uh, as, as, as John Dyson said, um, the government uh, got in first by briefing you in the current proceedings, uh, which have been heard in the Court of Appeal, um, and we're awaiting judgment. Um, uh, and, and, and you were uh, briefed a, a, as, as, a, as a, a double act with Sir James Eady for yes. the government. Um, and so you have decided that you can't take part in the current debate um, on the bill uh, that the government is proposing for the next stage. Well, I can't, can I? I mean, I no, can't, you can't at one and the same time be council, one of the council with my friend James Eady for the Secretary of State, for Suella Braverman, uh, seeking to persuade the Court of Appeal that the Rwanda policy is perfectly lawful and that it's not a breach, for example, of the Refugee Convention to say to aspiring um, uh, asylum seekers, uh, you can be shipped off to Rwanda. I can't do that and at the same time stand up in the House of Lords and argue that all of this is an outrage. I mean, I can't, can't do both of those things if, if that were my view. If that were if your that view. Were my view. Um, so I have to be very careful. And I, I, I think, having first been briefed, then um, uh, there are many other peers in the House of Lords who will present the case for and against the government's policy. Uh, and it is a tricky issue. Uh, but in the court, I'm, I'm arguing the law. But uh, part of the objection to the illegal migrants bill is, is a legal objection that um, this is, it is said, uh, a breach of the, um, uh, the Geneva uh, Convention, European Convention on Human Rights, all, all sorts of things. Issues arise in the bill about whether it's appropriate to have a clause that permits the Home Secretary um, uh, not to comply with an indication from Strasbourg, were it to give one in the future, uh, under Rule 39, that people should not be removed. And all of those issues are, are really part of, of the case in the Court of Appeal. It may go to the Supreme Court, it may go to, uh, go to Strasbourg. And um, I take very seriously, <coughs> I know many of my colleagues at the bar take very seriously, the cab rank principle. You know, we, we appear in areas that are part of our practice, whether we agree with the client or we don't agree with the client. And the Home Secretary is no different from, from that. You know, I've appeared in recent times for Shamima Begum, uh, for Boris Johnson, against Boris Johnson, and for the Home Secretary. And I don't agree with all of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's talk about some of those. I mean, just before we, we, we leave Rwanda, um, yeah. obviously you can't talk about a case you're involved in, particularly no. a case um, which uh, uh, on which judgment has been reserved. Yes. But but can you can you tell us in neutral terms about the issues in that case? Yes. Uh, the, the legal issues in that case, and so you know, what the court is grappling with, and, and, and conceivably, if not the arguments on both sides, what what the question no. is. Well, very briefly, about. there are three main issues. Issue number one is whether Rwanda is a safe third country, and the uh, the. Uh, uh, Appellants in the Court of Appeal, supported by 
uh, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees say, no, it's not. Uh, and this is why it's not. Look at how Rwanda's behaved in the past, shipped people off with cursory examination of their asylum claims, shipped them off to other, other countries. The judges are not independent, all sorts of things. The government's response, and James Eady's presented this part of the case, is essentially, yes, but whatever the truth of that, uh, we, the United Kingdom, have a bespoke agreement with Rwanda uh, under which the, their officials will be trained, are being trained, uh, they're being monitored by people from this country. Rwanda has a very considerable incentive, both in financial terms and reputational terms, to ensure it does the job properly. And therefore, uh, the Secretary of State is perfectly entitled, she's right, uh, to conclude that it's a safe third country in this context. That's the first issue. The second issue which I'm dealing with uh, is the complaint that even if Rwanda is a safe third country, you can't send refugee claimants off there. Why not? Because it is said that is a breach of the Geneva Convention. It frustrates the Geneva Convention on refugees for a country uh, to uh, not to uh, assess the merits of asylum claims, uh, but to, um, through some side deal, uh, uh, send them off to another country where uh, whatever, where even if it's complying with basic standards, it doesn't do as good a job as we would do here. And there are various other legal arguments which I'm uh, dealing with. It's said that um, uh, the United Kingdom is still bound by uh, a European Union directive on refugees. We haven't uh, uh, removed that. There's a third set of issues which I'm dealing with, have dealt with, <coughs> which is fairness. It's said that the procedures in this country uh, for uh, dealing with asylum claimants before they're sent off to Rwanda is simply unfair. Why is it unfair? Well, because they only have seven days to make representations as to whether in the circumstances of their case or generally uh, Rwanda would be safe for them. Court of Appeal listened to all that very carefully uh, and it will give us judgment in due course. At the end of the hearing, the Lord Chief Justice said he'd been very surprised to read uh, a number of predictions, not by you I think, that he was about to give judgment very speedily indeed and he <coughs> said no, uh, he won't be giving judgment very speedily indeed, it's a difficult important case and it will take as long as it takes. I hope that's a relatively neutral uh, a summary of the issues. Perfectly, and nobody <laughs> would dare say otherwise. Let, let's move on to Miller. I mean, the, the two Miller cases could be the cases for which you're best known. Is that right? Um, I mean, uh, the, the Miller won, of course, um, led to a meme, or perhaps a T-shirt. Um, this is your exchange with Lady Hale in court. Uh, do you want to just tell us? Not really, no. Oh, no? <laughs> It was something to do with a, a case whose name I, I've forgotten. Well, I, you, what was the name of the case? Well, that was what the, that was what the meme know, was but, about, Takiza. yes, that's right. And, and Lady Hale told well, me I pronounced it wrongly. I yes. said Takiza. Well, to be, fair, to, to be fair to her, she said to, uh, slightly rhetorically, um, and I looked this up just before mm -hmm. I came, um, is it the case that I've been mispronouncing the name of this case all my life? Um, and you politely said to her, well, how should I pronounce it? You'd said de Kaiser. Yeah, she said de Kaiser. And I said something like... Um, uh, you say de Kaiser. You say de Kaiser, I say de Kaiser. What I didn't say 
and I thought of later in the esprit d'escalier that applies to all barristers is that um, uh, you say potato, I say potato, which this comes from, is of course the lyric written by Ira Gershwin uh, of the song Let's Call the Whole Thing Off. And, uh, uh, <laughs> and that, of course, uh, was entirely appropriate, or would have been entirely appropriate, in relation to Brexit. Um, now, now, <laughs> uh, but I, but I, 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 didn't, I didn't connect the two at, at the time. Probably this this was, um, <coughs> you know, Gina Miller won a great victory and she established that notwithstanding that there'd been a referendum, uh, the decision to leave uh, Europe, the EU, uh, could only be uh, decided upon by Parliament. Um, and it was a Pyrrhic victory, of course, as so many are, because that's exactly what Parliament did. Uh, and um, the second Miller case was the prorogation case. And um, uh, 11 judges of the Supreme Court decided that Boris Johnson had acted unlawfully in advising Her Majesty the Queen to prorogue, that is, suspend uh, Parliament uh, and um, in order to get Brexit done. And that was a Pyrrhic victory because three months later, Boris Johnson was um, elected in the general election of December 2019 with a massive majority. So the population weren't too concerned about um, breaches of the principles of constitutional law. But it was great fun. Uh, well, it was, it, was more, fun. it was more than that, because it, it established, didn't it, and both cases established the importance of Parliament. Both cases yes. um, established, uh, Miller one established uh, that um, only Parliament could trigger Brexit. Yes. Um, your analogy about the, the speeding bullet, which took several years, but it yeah. finally um, hit its target. And, and Miller, too, established uh, that the Prime Minister couldn't unilaterally scrap Parliament, prorogue Parliament. So, yes. so they, I mean, that, those were, I mean, they were more... All right, it, it was about it was parliamentary sovereignty. They were. They that both established that parliamentary sovereignty is a core principle of the British Constitution, but in, t in political terms, uh, Brexit was done, and Boris Johnson did take us out of Europe uh, with all the consequences, good or bad, depending upon your political views, uh, of, of that decision. But that didn't stop his solicitor briefing you to represent him in the House of Commons Privileges, Privileges Committee inquiry, which was recently conducted and, and which, again, uh, we um, are, waiting, are awaiting judgment on. Yes, Boris Johnson has made a significant contribution, I think it's fair to say, to constitutional law in this country. <laughs> what, what, whatever, you think, whatever you think of his political skills or otherwise, he has certainly done that. And you'll remember that after Partygate, the House of Commons voted uh, to send off to the Privileges Committee now chaired by Harriet Harman, uh, the question, did he mislead the House of Commons when he said uh, that um, the Brexit regulations were, uh, were complied with? And um, uh, the, we, we had a hearing. Uh, some of you may have seen it on, on television. When was it? About a month ago. And I found that, I think, one of the most frustrating experiences of my career <laughs> as a barrister because I wasn't allowed to say anything. 
And in my uh, experience, 42 years of experience, it's pretty unusual to be representing someone but be prevented from saying anything to those who are taking the decision. You, you argued against that before the hearing. Yes, I mean, I, we, we said to them, this is, this is fundamentally unfair. They said, no, 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 you know, we're not a court of law, we're, we're a parliamentary committee, that's how, that's how we operate. But the reality is that they will be deciding uh, on uh, a, a matter that will or could have grave consequences uh, for him, that if he's found to have misled Parliament, and if the sanction that they recommend is um, more than 10 days suspension from the House of Commons, and if the House of Commons agrees with that, uh, then there can be a recall petition and uh, there can be a by-election. So it's a very grave sanction that, that, that they, they have. We, we can put in and did put in written representations, but as a barrister, I, I'm rather attached to the idea the oral argument is, is of value. Uh, not lengthy oral arguments, but some oral argument. And particularly when the questions that were being put by the members of parliament on occasions may perhaps have um, misstated the terms uh, and the uh, impact of the regulations that he was being uh, accused of breaching, then it is a very frustrating experience. This was perhaps obvious to those of us watching you on television, sitting to the side of Boris Johnson. You did raise an eyebrow just yeah, once Just occasionally, twice. yes. yes. But that Maybe. was all you could do. But, but, but to be fair to the committee, you weren't allowed to defend, but they didn't have counsel to prosecute, as you might have in some other procedure, it might have in the United no, States. But it, it, might, it might be said that's another element of unfairness. I mean, in any other tribunal in the land, you would not have, would you, the same people performing the role of investigator, prosecutor, and judge. I mean, it would simply be, you know, were, were that to be the case in relation to the working men's club of, 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 of Cleethorpes, which dismisses someone from membership, or the golf club of Isha, which uh, imposes a sanction. Or the Garrick. Or the Garrick, yes, the Garrick would be a very, another good example. Uh, I'm not sure about the guys, private. But, 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 but some, you know, some body subject to judicial review. I would be pretty confident, and the judges here tonight would say if I'm wrong, pretty confident that um, a complaint that that's an unfair procedure uh, would, would succeed. But again, the answer is, well, no, 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 we're, we're parliaments. We're, we're not a court, and they're not, but they are quasi-judicial in the way that they are, are uh, conducting themselves. So the question arises, is this fair? And of course, the problem is that because they're a parliamentary committee, they are not subject to judicial review. Uh, they enjoy parliamentary privilege. That's, that's the law of the land. Uh, the closest I can think of of an inquisitorial court in this country is an inquest uh, where the coroner uh, is the inquisitor, asks the questions, takes the decisions and so on. But that's very different. The coroner's powers are much more limited. Yes, and in any uh, important case, you would find counsel who would um, perform the role. And this is easily remediable. All that the uh, parliamentary committee needs to do is to appoint um, a, a um, uh, counsel to perform that role, and they can sit there, they can listen, they can interject for clarification, 
um, uh, but, but for them to perform the role of, of, um, of, of prosecuting and judging does make me uh, uh, uneasy. And I'm not just talking about Boris Johnson's case. I mean, I've, I've taken this view in other cases as, uh, as well. But, um, but that's how parliamentary committees uh, operate. Now, the interesting thing is that Boris Johnson, uh, when uh, his solicitor, Nick Vamos, advised him to brief you, uh, didn't say, oh, Batman Panic, he defeated me um, on Miller 2 um, and, and hold it against you personally. Yeah. And, and this is an example of the Cabrain rule. This, this is you being protected by the Cabrain rule. You can say, well, I acted for Gina Miller. I could have acted for the Prime Minister. I sometimes have acted yeah. for the Prime Minister. You've acted for all sorts of you know, dignitaries in, in yeah. your time. Um, but, but your argument as a practicing barrister and a strong supporter of the Cabrain rule is that a barrister should not be identified with that barrister's Well, I think this is absolutely fundamental. And um, I, I was very concerned recently, you may have seen, that uh, a number of prominent lawyers expressed the view that they would not accept instructions to prosecute environmental protesters. Um, the fact that they consisted of Sir Geoffrey Bineman and Jolie and Mormon were most unlikely to be instructed to be prosecutors in, in those cases. Nothing to the point. They said as a matter of principle, they would not accept instructions. And I've always taken the view, and I think a number of my colleagues take the view, that it is fundamental to the role of the barrister that you don't pick and choose your cases on the basis of whether you approve of your client or what they are accused of, of, of having done. And um, you know, John Mortimer, through um, his, his um, creation, <coughs> Rumpole, said famously, um, I act for murderers. It doesn't mean I approve of murder. Uh, and that, that's my view. And I've always taken that view. And I think if you don't take that view, then you are associated, or you're likely to be associated, with the views of your client. And people who are accused of terrible things Sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly, you know, they're accused of rape or murder or being a paedophile or, or whatever, or they're Shamima Begum, um, will find it much more difficult to obtain competent representation because a council will inevitably be concerned that you're being associated uh, with, with, with that client. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that, that, that there are some people who already associate you with your, with your client. I've had a number of... Um, uh, how shall I put it, critical emails for representing Boris Johnson and for representing Shamima Begum in, in particular. But I think this is fundamental to practice at the bar and there are many people at the bar who share that view. The Bar Council was very strong in response to the environmental issue that that is so. Uh, many of my colleagues take a different view, uh, but I think it's fundamental. Um, if um, a young advocate who was... Um seeking to join the bar, develop a career at the bar, <coughs> wanted some advice in advocacy and the skills that you have demonstrated so successfully over the past uh, 40 years or so. I mean, is there a, a book by any chance? A, a, <laughs> a, a, a slim paperback that you might wish to recommend? Well, yeah, well, it's, just, it's very strange that you should mention <laughs> that because just published this week are the Hamlin Lectures uh, by uh, David Panic, <laughs> entitled Advocacy. These lectures were given in November 
2021. This is all very incestuous because Joshua won't tell you, but he's one of the trustees of the, the Hamlin Lectures. Um, and um, I, I, I begin uh, this book by pointing out that there's a real danger in writing about advocacy because what you say may be wholly unpersuasive. But nevertheless, that's, that's what, 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 what I've done here uh, on the invitation of the Hamlin trustees. Uh, and um, you know, anyone who wants to know my, my, my views, they can, read, they can read the book. Or they can ask questions now. They can. So um, we're going to have roving microphones uh, wandering around. Um, please indicate that you would like to ask a question. Ideally, please give your name um, and, and anything else you want to say about it. Um, I may take one question, I may take a few questions, um, and uh, we shall see how we go. Yeah. Um, who has the first question? Who would like I'm to? I'm sure there will be, because there will whatever, be. whatever the quality of the see, interview, the quality of the audience is very high. I can't ask the first question, because I've already asked you lots oh, of questions. Okay. This, is a, this is the problem. Um, there, yes, Lord Conworth is, is at the front here. Um, um, there's a microphone coming down. Um, He's got a very loud voice. So you can uh, well, there, there may be. I don't know if that. Well, yes, that that'll work. Try and see if Let that works. Let's stay on. Um, Hello. Yes, we can hear you. you we can, can hear, hear you. Yes. Yeah. Um, David, thank you for that. <laughs> I have enjoyed your advocacy over many years and enjoyed your friendship. But uh, the two Miller cases, which I was a participant in, um, it did strike me. They both, in the end, sort of rested on convenient fudges. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, in the first case, the one about the Article 50 notice, um, rests on the assumption that the notice once served couldn't be withdrawn. And hence your very attractive analogy of the, the, the bullet taking a little time to reach its target. But we now know that was wrong. The court, yeah. European Court has said that was wrong. It always yeah. seemed to be a very odd assumption to me, yeah. as I said in my judgment. Your dissenting judgment. In my dissenting. Yeah. Um, but it was a very convenient assumption from the point of your, your view of your successful argument. The second case was rather more subtle, I think, because it seemed to me to rest on the assumption that the Queen was bound by the Prime Minister's advice which I found a pretty questionable assumption, and I suspect our present monarch might have had a rather different view about that. Mm. But again, it was rather a convenient assumption from the point of view of your argument. Um, I'd just like your comment as whether you agree that they were, in a sense, fudges, mm. um, and also how that was achieved as a matter of agreement between the advocates. Well... You say a fudge, of course, if you're the advocate, you're really not concerned with the coherent development of the law. That's the function of the judge. The role of the advocate, if I can quote Justice Felix Frankfurter of the United States Supreme Court, is not to enlarge the intellectual horizon. His task, or I would add her task, is to seize the mind for a predetermined end not to explore paths to truth. And that's what I believe about the, the, the advocates. You know, if it's a fudge, fine. If your client wins the case, you have achieved uh, your objective. But putting a more academic hat on, well, yes, of, of, of course, in the first one, um, it, 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 the, 
problem with that case was that it was at the intersection of law and politics with a number of assumptions as to how the Europeans would behave in various hypothetical circumstances. And the bullet shot from the gun was, I think, a useful tool of advocacy, but not, as you say, accurate. In relation to prorogation, the difficulty with analyzing the case is that it was argued on behalf of the government in a very strange way. They were unwilling to engage in the relationship between the Prime Minister and Her Majesty. They declined to provide any evidence from the Prime Minister as to what he thought at various times. And I have reason to believe that was because the government lawyers didn't think that they could properly put before the court anything that would assist in, I put it politely, anything that would assist in those respects. So the role of Her Majesty was touched upon, if I remember rightly, during the argument. Could Her Majesty, now of course His Majesty, decline to follow the advice of the Prime Minister in relation to prorogation? And there was, I think, an interview with Jacob Rees-Mogg, who was the President of the Council at the time, and who went to Balmoral in order to communicate to Her Majesty what the advice from the Prime Minister was. And he said in the interview that it was a very short meeting, and the advice was communicated, and to use Joshua's phrase, a quizzical eyebrow was raised. Do you want to come back on that? It's quite an interesting thing that whereas Lord Panic can't ask Lord Carnworth to explain the reasons behind his judgment, Lord Carnworth can ask Lord Panic to explain the justification for his advocacy, which is slightly an unusual thing. Do you want to come back? No, really. I thought you gave the answer I rather expected. I think that what I'd be interested to know is whether if the present King Charles had been faced with Jacob Rees-Mogg coming along, whether he would have done more than raise a quizzical eyebrow, but we won't know that. No, I don't know. I suspect that the advice from the Prime Minister would be challenged to a greater extent, and perhaps a view would be expressed as to dissatisfaction that may lead another Prime Minister to think again. One would hope so. Properly? Would that be done properly? Would the King be acting properly? And how far could the King go in asking for the advice to the King from the government to be reconsidered? Well, yes, as a matter of basic constitutional principles, see Badgett, the monarch is entitled to advise and warn and various other things of that nature. It's up to the Prime Minister at the end of the day to say what is going to happen. And for the monarch to stand out against the advice of the Prime Minister would cause a constitutional crisis. But as I say, I think what would happen is displeasure would be expressed, particularly in the light of what happened in 2019. Another question. Who has another question? Yep, go ahead.
No, keep speaking, it'll come on, don't worry. Um, they, they always do. Well, this audience is pretty good. Yeah, 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 yeah. um, no, I think if, if, if you speak to any advocate and they are honest, they will tell you that going into court is a nerve-wracking experience. It doesn't matter how uh, experienced you are, whether it's your first case or whether you've been doing it for 40 years, you simply don't know what's going to happen. And it's a terrifying experience, whether it's appearing before an employment tribunal or the Supreme Court. Um, but once you start, the nerves tend uh, to, to dissipate. And um, uh, I think that that's true of many, many advocates. Um, and again, if I quote John Mortimer in his autobiography, he said that long after he'd retired from the bar, he would have dreams in which he was running through the, court of the, the Royal Courts of Justice to get to a court uh, to appear in a case which he hadn't prepared. And, um, you know, that gives you an indication. So, and I, you mentioned before advice to young advocates. The advice I would give to young advocates is, is, is you get nervous. Um, and that's part of the, uh, the thrill of advocacy. It's part of the fun of advocacy. But there are very few advocates who don't get nervous. And those who don't are not very good, in my experience. And, and, and the skill very much, while we're waiting for the next question, the skill very much um, is... It's like in so many areas of life, uh, to make it look easy. Um, you know, that, 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 that's the job. And, yeah. you know, the, the work is done in advance, the preparation is done in advance, and the, the experience, um, and that's when you start beguiling the court with three points, one of which um, is, is obvious, uh, second which is a, a truism, and the third one follows <laughs> inexorably from the second, and, and then you've won your case. You hope. Next question. Um, over there, gentleman there. Yes, well, governments over the years have made threats to curtail judicial review, normally immediately after they've lost celebrated cases. Uh, I remember <coughs> in the House of Lords battling against proposals by Chris Grayling. You remember him when he was uh, Lord Chancellor. Um, and, and it didn't have much effect. His proposals, they were watered down. Um, this happens from, from time to time. Uh, I think governments should follow the advice that... Um, Derry Irvin, as Lord Chancellor, gave to David Blunkett as Home Secretary uh, when uh, the government lost an important case. Joshua will remember which one it was, but Derry Irvin said something like, uh, when you win in court as the government, you don't cheer, and when you lose, you don't boo. Um, a judicial review is alive and well. It's, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, hundreds of cases, thousands of cases a year. Principles are developed all the time. And it is an absolutely basic element of the rule of law. Uh, and uh, governments threaten to reduce it from time to time. Uh, but it has a persistence. It remains. And long may it remain. Another question. Uh, yes. Um, you have to go ahead. And, and Baroness, Baroness Ludford. Hello, Sarah Ludford. I'm a Liberal Democrat peer. You are, yeah. And um, very much appreciating this event. Um, we missed you yesterday, David, in the second reading on the illegal migration bill. 
Um, but on the general, you're absolutely right that we, we, uh, we lack enough lawyers. And um, I just wondered whether um, you, and I probably ought to know the answer to this, but I must admit the series of bills that come through, one never has the time to raise one's head and think about wider things. But is that, are you picking up any appreciation across the House and the different political groups, including from the government, that that is an issue? And I mean, we've seen loads <coughs> of particularly conservative peers appointed. Um, I just wondered whether you had um, you had identified any head of, of, of feeling about this issue. No, there are lots of good lawyers on the government benches. I mentioned uh, the names Wolfson, uh, Fawkes, Keane. Uh, there's uh, Lord Garnier, many, many, many others. I think the the. The, the gaps are on the opposition benches. You, you've got Jonathan Marks, Lord Marks does a superb job. There aren't many uh, uh, lawyers on the Labour benches. I don't think the government is too concerned about this because it regards lawyers essentially in Parliament as troublemakers. And so <laughs> the fewer there are on the opposition benches and on the cross benches, uh, the better. Uh, and, um, you know, there are others on the cross benches. You mentioned David Anderson, there's Alex Carlyle. Uh, there are a number of other, other lawyers, and, and we try to press the government uh, on, on, on legal issues. Um, but there should be more. Uh, and one of the problems, the main problem, I think, of the House of Lords is that appointments are by way, by way of patronage. And um, the Prime Minister is not particularly interested in appointing more lawyers. Okay, another question. Um, gentleman there. Yes, uh, there, there, a microphone will come to you. Uh, you might as well wait. Oh. I had a question about patronage. Oh. Uh, yeah. I wanted to get one comprehensive answer to this, and then I can move on to one more I'll just repeat the question <laughs> a little bit, or perhaps you'll, you'll summarise it. But the, the final part of the question was how to persuade a judge of something that they don't want to do. And, and yeah. Well, there's, there's, there's an old adage, when the law is not in your favour, you focus on the facts. And when the facts are against you, you focus on the law. And when the law and the facts are against you, you shout and you bang the table. And that's the, <laughs> the well-known adage. Um, I mean, the skill of one of the skills of advocacy is uh, trying to identify what are the most attractive points. And I think one of the weaknesses of many advocates, if I may say so, is that they argue every possible point. And the danger of doing that is that the good point gets lost amongst all the, uh, the bad uh, uh, points. Uh, uh, someone, I can't remember who, once said that if you're, uh, if you're holding a dinner party and um, you serve uh, ten items, uh, nine of which have a turd on top of them, no one's going to eat anything. <laughs> That's a crude way of um, making, making the point. You want to select your best points. Uh, and there are always good points or better points in any case. And those are the ones you you focus on. They may not get you home because they're not winnable points, 
and however good the advocate, there are many, many cases that are simply not winnable. Although you could win more of them than... No, no I lose more cases than I win. <laughs> well, that's because uh, you get instructed on the most difficult well, ones. Maybe. A another question. Um, another question? Uh, or shall we call the... Oh, yeah, lady over there. There we are. Hi, my name is Evgenia. I'm a student at the LSE. Um, I was just wondering, coming back to the judicial review question that was a couple questions earlier, um, do you see the cuts to legal aid as a significant threat to what you say is alive and well? The cuts, cuts to legal aid? Yeah, very yeah. much. Yes, yes very, very severe threat. Uh, legal aid has, um, since 1949, when it was introduced, it's been cut in terms of the subject matter that it covers. Uh, it's been cut in relation to the proportion of the um, uh, of people in this country who it it covers, and it's now very very restricted. And it means that if people want to bring judicial reviews, then either they need to have private means or they need to have uh, some organisation that is is backing them. And that's a real practical disadvantage. Uh, judicial review is alive and well, but as you point out, and you're right to do so, uh, access to the courts is of uh, very, very considerable importance, and I fear is, is under threat, partly under threat because of the costs of, of, of litigation. So yes, I mean, you're right, it's a real concern. Uh, probably one last question, if, uh, yeah, gentlemen over there. Please, the, the microphone will come to you. Might as well wait for it. It's not very far to come. There we go. Uh, good evening, Paul Squires from Cedric. Um, thank you, Carmen and the team for organising, and thank you both. It's been a fascinating <coughs> evening. Uh, a lighter one to finish. Um, so, do you have some advice for some of the maybe current and budding lawyers here uh, this evening on how you might um, advice on how you might handle uh, perhaps a difficult, maybe um, a, a greased client? A greased client. A, a client who is uh, inebriated or...? or, or a, a client who's perhaps been um, described as being a, a greased piglet or someone difficult to handle or yes. gem general advice on greased handling piglet. difficult clients. How, how do you, a hypothetical fair-haired um, client um, who, 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 who um, yes, how, how do you deal with difficult clients? Well, that's the life of a barrister. You've got to deal with difficult clients uh, difficult solicitors, sometimes difficult judges, but you deal with it with patience, with charm, <laughs> and intelligence. And, and Hope, hopefully. <laughs> a, a, a final question from me, really, is, is where you go from here. I mean, here you are at the top of your profession, yeah. um, <laughs> top of the bar, top of, um, top of uh, yeah, a major con contributor yeah. to the House of Lords. Yeah. 100 cases before the Lords, yeah. another, uh, what is it, before the Supreme Court, yeah. 25, 50? Or yeah, there is something called hubris, uh, which is constantly <laughs> in, in one's mind. Now, I, I enjoy what I do, and I will continue to do it as long as I am able to do so. I have three teenage children, which provide <laughs> an incentive to keep going. <laughs> and a wife. And three more older children as well. Indeed. David Panic, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Pass thank on you. to John Dyson.
Well, was that not a, a treat? Uh, and um, I think my predictions at the beginning have been amply borne out. We've witnessed um, a, a brilliant advocate. He's displayed all the skills <laughs> that I've seen many times as a judge, <coughs> charm, a, a brilliant intellect, cutting through, uh, not wasting a word, uh, clarity, and utterly persuasive. Uh, David, I hope you do go on for many more years, even though I have uh, given up as a judge, uh, but I always enjoyed your advocacy. I, I, I found it interesting to hear what you said about, um, your, about oral argument. It's hardly surprising that you're, an ad, you're a, a, a devotee of oral argument. Uh, and those of us who saw um, the, uh, our, uh, Boris Johnson, the, the Privileges Committee, his performance, um, uh, found, must have found it, as I did, absolutely fascinating. To see your face, David, um, <laughs> that, that, that spoke volumes, in my view. Um, but, of course, you weren't able to say anything. And, of course, you can't tell us what you did and what you didn't do. But I, I felt, and I expect many of us also felt, that uh, when Boris Johnson was speaking to his written text, he was on very safe ground, he was very clear, uh, and it was all rather good. And I thought to myself, I wonder if David Panic had written that. Uh, you don't have to comment. But once he, he got off, uh, went off piste, then it all got very exciting and interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, so thank you very much. And Joshua, again, I think everything that I said uh, was likely to happen um, was demonstrated amply by, by what you did. You didn't ask any devilish questions, but you did ask some searching questions and some very interesting questions. And I think we've learnt a great deal uh, from these two people who are at, at the top of their respective professions. So um, I, I, before I s sit down, and I'm sure you're all desperate to, <laughs> to, to go to the reception, um, I do need, I, I would like at any rate, to just say a few words about the charity whose uh, support through court that has uh, put on this wonderful event. Um, I, I, as I said, um, I, I'm in no doubt that the work that it does, does make an important contribution to enhancing the access to justice uh, in our civil and family justice system of those who do not enjoy legal representation. The service provided by the charity is free. It's based in court buildings at centers around the country. Uh, and it arranges face-to-face -face meetings between volunteers and litigants. Uh, and I, when I was head of civil justice, uh, I met some of the volunteers on my visits to court centers. Uh, and I found them truly inspiring people, utterly committed to helping to promote access to justice to those to whom it is denied. They explain how the court works, help the litigants to fill in forms and organize their papers. And David said, it, he, 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 it's difficult to credit this, but I, I believe him, I think, uh, that he gets nervous when he uh, is about to start a, a case. Um, I certainly can remember that I, I was very nervous, but as he said, the nerves vanish very, very quickly. But I think uh, those who are self-representing uh, litigants, I suspect they are, many of them at any rate, uh, are n uh, nervous throughout. It must be a very daunting experience. So the, the volunteers uh, help the litigants to, to plan what they want to say in a court. 
and if necessary accompany them into court uh, and provide support for them by simply being there. The, but they cannot provide legal advice or legal representation. So the work that this charity does is of enormous benefit. <coughs> it is of enormous benefit to the, uh, the, the clients, as I think they call them, whom they assist. It, they are also of enormous benefit to the judiciary because anything to, to help the, these litigants to be a little calmer than they would otherwise be and to um, understand what's going on uh, is of enormous help to the, to the judges as well because if judges do find some self-represented litigants very difficult to manage and yet, of course, uh, they're always alive to the need to be fair to them as to everybody else. So th that's all I really wanted to say. If you want to know more about uh, support through court, there will be people here who you can speak to uh, in the reception. And of course, the charity would be only too delighted, I think, to receive any donations that you see fit to, to give. But that's enough from me, and I hope you enjoy the reception. <laughs>